This morning I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 2, Psalm 2. The psalmist writes, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their feathers, fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and re rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not be angry, become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This psalm is included in the group of psalms referred to as messianic psalms. A messianic psalm is a psalm whose Burden is the suffering and triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. This psalm has the distinction of being one of the most widely quoted and alluded to psalms by the New Testament writers, perhaps only rivaled by Psalm 110. Now, although there is no superscription that reveals the author, the New Testament writers assign credit to David for penning this psalm. Interestingly, there is evidence that Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 were at one time joined together as a single literary unit. Psalm 1 begins with the words, how blessed is the man, and Psalm 2 ends with the words, how blessed are all. This is common in the Psalms. In Psalm 103 and Psalm 104, they both begin with, bless the Lord, O my soul, and they end with, bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalms 146 through 150, all entitled Hallelujah Psalms, all begin with praise the Lord and end with praise the Lord. Also, both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 end with a reference to the wicked perishing. Psalm 2 is believed by many to be what is called a coronation psalm that was perhaps written for David's coronation and the successors to David's throne. However, the language of Psalm 2 points way beyond David. It points way beyond Solomon. In fact, it points far beyond any of the earthly successors to David's throne, for none of David's sons could have fulfilled this psalm except David's greater son, who was born of Mary. You see, this psalm points to none other than Jesus Christ. One writer has said this, this psalm is dramatic and sublime. It, attempts have been made to connect it with David or Solomon, but its scope is too vast and majestic to be limited to any earthly monarch. The psalm must find its complete fulfillment in him to whom its glowing passages are referred in various portions of scripture. Thematically speaking, Psalm 2 reminds us of the folly of rebelling against the sovereign Lord and his Messiah and the blessedness of taking refuge in the Lord's Christ. This Psalm divides out nicely as it possesses four almost equal movements or stanzas. These will create our outline for this morning. 
verses 1 through 3, we see the rebellion of the nations. In verses 4 through 6, we see the response of the sovereign. In verses 7 through 9, we see the reign of the king. And in verses 10 through 12, we see the refuge in the sun. Consider the rebellion of the nations in verses 1 through 3. The psalmist again writes, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The first three verses of Psalm 2 describe all of humanity's sinful defiance against God's rule and his authority over his creation. We see in this the absurdity of the, of the rebellion in verse 1. The psalmist writes and begins by asking a question. He says, he says why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Now, this is not a question to gain information. He's not missing some sort of information. This is a question of astonishment. The psalmist is shocked by what's happening by the nations. We all understand this. We, we go into a room. You had your children sitting in there playing a game or whatever. You go into the room and chaos ensues. You left them in there with some board games. You go in there and you find flour all over the floor. Uh, they, they, they burn down a, a, a toy house or whatever. You see all the chaos there. And what do you say to them? What are you doing? Why did you do that? Well, you're not asking that question because you're trying to find out information. You know what they've done. You know that they're sinners and they're just doing what's what's natural to their heart. What, you, what, what you're saying is, I am astonished at what I'm seeing right now. I am bewildered. I do not really grasp why you, we got to this place. And the psalmist is asking this question. Why are the nations in an uproar? He's shocked. He's bewildered. And he's bewildered because of who is angered. These puny creatures are angry with the omnipotent God. This is why he's bewildered. He's astonished that the pot is angry with the potter. That the creatures who have lives that are but a vapor are upset with the eternal God. The psalmist is simply amazed at what one writer says is the senseless rejection of God's rule and his ruler. Why would they do this? It's a fight they cannot win. It's a battle that is over before it even begins. The psalmist describes the rebellion in verse 1. He paints for us a vivid picture of the rebellion. He calls it an uproar. The picture here is of a raging sea. It is the picture of a rabid mob that is foaming at the mouth and distraught. In fact, the ESV in the New King James Version translates this as, why do the nations rage? It is a picture of utter upheaval. And so the picture that is presented to us is a picture of man and his rebellion, filled with rage. He says that they are devising, in verse 1, the people are devising a vain thing. This word is used also in Psalm 1, 2, 1 verse 2, to describe the activity of the righteous man. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he what? He meditates day and night. This is the same word that's used here. And so the psalmist speaks 
here of these, the nations here meditating and devising, meditating on how they might overthrow the sovereign God. It speaks here of them taking counsel together. And so the picture is presented to us as a picture of man in all of his rebellion, filled with rage, and meditating on the overthrow of God. He describes here the activity of the rebels. He says they are devising a vain thing. It's almost as if he's saying what they are trying will not succeed. It's a vain thing. It's an empty thing. It's, as one pastor said, it's very anticlimactic in that it's not going to succeed. And yet we hear the psalmist saying here of and describing their activity as being a vain thing. It says, and they are joining their minds together down in verse 2. It says, the rulers take counsel together. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together. And so they are putting their minds together. They're contemplating, what can we do to overcome this king? This is nothing short of a coup d'etat, a rebellion. This is a conspiracy. We hear this word thrown around a lot, don't we, nowadays? A conspiracy theory. This is no conspiracy theory. This is an actual conspiracy that is taking place. This is the heart of rebellious man at, at his apex and what he does in his rebellion against God. He conspires to overthrow God. This is his mind. This is how his mind thinks. And we see here the scope of the rebellion. Notice the scope of the rebellion we see in verse 2. It says, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. So it's not just the peoples that we read of in verse 1, but it's also the kings of the earth and the rulers also taking counsel together to overthrow the Lord. He speaks of the nations, the Gentiles, and the peoples. In verse 2, he mentions the kings and the rulers. In verse 10, he mentions kings and judges. And so this rebellion, this revolt, is not even simply limited to some sort of regional overthrow of a, or a group of kings trying to overthrow God. It is a supremely widespread revolt against God and against his son. And this speaks of a universal opposition to God. Every man, woman, and child apart from Christ is in rebellion against God. The rich and the poor, the king and the peasant, the black and the white, the native, the illegal alien, all of God's creatures apart from Christ are in rebellion against God. This is their natural state. This speaks of a universal opposition to God. It is, in fact, a global conspiracy, a cosmic revolt. As one commentator says, all of humanity is galvanized for rebellion. We understand this from the scriptures. In Romans chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me quickly, we see that this is true of all of humanity. You all are familiar with this, but let us see this in light of what we're reading here in Psalm 2 of this cosmic revolt. Paul is bringing the indictments against both Jews and Gentiles here in, in the book of Romans. And now he's down in verse 10. He speaks here of the universality of this, this rebellion. That all of creation is in rebellion against God. As it is written, he says, there is none righteous, not 
even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. If you drop down to verse 21 or 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the rebellion isn't just relegated to a few people. Sometimes we think in our minds that they are the sinners over there. And this is how the world thinks. We, we have to understand is when you're witnessing to people, we have to understand that when you're sharing the gospel with men, they don't think they're as bad off as they really are. In fact, they, they usually think very highly of their, of their, their morality, which is why we, we often have to bring the law to bear upon their sin. We have to show them from the word of God, no, you are a sinner lost in your sin and you are in need of a savior. You have to show them the danger of where they are currently before a holy God. If we do not show them the danger, then they do not flee to Christ. And so the world has to be reminded of the fact that they, there is a reason that we are sharing these things with them is because you are in danger because you are in the class of those who are sinners. So we speak to them of the gospel and share with them of their lost estate and pray that God will take that word home to their hearts. But the scope of the rebellion is wide. Listen, it's, it's not just, let me say, it's not just public school students either, young people. There are homeschoolers too, private school students. It's the, it's, it's, the, it's the mother who stays at home, the mother who works outside the home. It's the husband who spends time with his children. It's the husband who, 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 who abandons his child. We are all apart from Christ in that same boat that is sinking. And so we have to be reminded that this rebellion is all of our rebellion. We all belong to this class. When I was growing up, from a very young age, I was convicted of my sin. I saw a film. It was the Jesus film. Some of you may be familiar with it. They came to my neighborhood. They showed the Jesus film. I was convicted of my sin. I didn't come to Christ. I, I tried to. I thought in my mind, this is, this is, I need to be a good person. I need to be better. I need to live my life differently. I stopped using profane words. I started thinking about uh, going to church. I never did go to church. I started thinking about going to church. I became at least convicted that when I saw people coming home from church, I was wrong. There was something not right about that. But I never understood it because when I got to college, I only thought about those people that I left behind as they're worse sinners than me. I had a friend that had a, I have a friend right now who has got a ba who's got a child right now who is 36 years old. I played basketball with him in, in high school. He was a freshman. He had a child already. And so in my mind, I'm thinking at that time, I'm not as bad off as he is. I'm not the sinner. This is how the world thinks is what you have to understand. The world thinks this way. So you can't believe, you can't begin when you're speaking, sharing the gospel with people, you can't begin with, you need a savior. You need to begin with, you are a sinner. You need to point them to the, to the reality of their condition before God. And so the scope of the rebellion is that it includes all of humanity. Notice the objects of their rebellion. Notice the objects of the rebellion. In verse Two, it says, against the Lord and against his anointed. 
In verse 2, the psalmist clearly articulates with whom they have a contention. It is against the Lord and against his anointed. It's against Jehovah and his Mashiach. The Hebrew word here for Messiah. It means God's Messiah. In other words, they hate God and they hate his Christ, his Messiah. This word in, is translated in the New Testament in, in, into Greek into the word Christ. Christ. And notice that this is not a, just a little skirmish that they're having with God. They have set themselves in battle array against God. It says that the kings of the earth, it says they take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is more than just a disagreement. This is declared war. This word is used in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 17. It says here, it says in verse 17, it says, You need not fight in this battle. Station yourself, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. It says, You are to stand. It's you to stand. That's the same word that's used here. It's the picture of standing in battle array. It's the language we get from, from, uh, from the book of Peter where it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is opposed. God stands in battle array against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is the same kind of language that takes place there. But now he's here talking about the nations. The nations are at war against God. They've declared war. They do not want terms of peace. They want the full overthrow of the sovereign Lord. And this is not true of the world today. This is not true of the leaders of today. They want to overthrow God. I mean, think about this, okay? The world will endure Islam or, or the Muslim faith, Islam. They'll endure Hinduism and Buddhism. They'll endure any kind of expression of religion, but they will not endure Christianity. They will not. We are, and this is not, I'm just preaching to the choir, we are the most persecuted of all of those who would say, claim some faith in God. Why is that the case? Well, I believe this is the case because those other expressions are, or seeking after God are false ways. They have been placed there by the evil one. And why is he going to put any barriers up in between this and that right there? He wants that to flourish. And so what does he do? He allows it to go. You see, but God's people, God's true people, the true God through Christ Jesus, we are opposed. We are opposed. Now, we see the ultimate fulfillment of this in the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 24. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. This is Peter praying uh, on the heels of his message at Pentecost and after being arrested and then set free. It says in verse 24, it says, And when they heard this, this is what the chief priests and elders said to them, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth 
and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And this is important to understand that, that before this time right here, Herod and Pontius Pilate were declared enemies of one another. They hated each other. Jews and the Romans, they hated each other with a, with a passion. And yet we find that in light of the, the crucifixion of Christ, that they became friends. We read this in Luke chapter 23, verse 11. It says, on that day, verse 12, now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. And so they found fellowship in hatred for Christ. Their hatred of Christ united their hearts together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, the Jews said that when they were asked the question of who shall we crucify? When Pilate said, shall we crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Where'd that come from? Why are they so, so in, inclined to Caesar now when they hated Caesar? They hated Jesus more. They despised him more. And so because they despised Jesus more, they were inclined to be in league together against him. Charles Spurgeon has said rightly, we have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. Notice in verse 3 the goal of the rebellion. Back in Psalm 2, he says, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. I believe here that the fetters and the cords are a reference to God's law and commandments. His laws, his commandments are perceived by the rebels as unbearable bondage. Therefore, he wants, the, he wants, he wants when nothing could be, sorry, sorry about that. Therefore, he wants nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. They think that God's law, his commandments are unbearable bondage. They say his law is constraining to their lusts and to their unholy desires, but God says the very opposite about his law. The picture that the psalmist paints for us is the picture of two oxen that are yoked together. The yoke of the oxen keeps them going in the right direction, but they want, to do, they want nothing to do with it. It is stifling to them. This is humanity in all his rebellion. You see, the law of God brings freedom, despite what the world says. The world says that the word of God is bondage. God says that the word of God brings freedom because obeying God is freedom. The world has misconstrued God's word. James calls it in James 2.12, he calls God's law the law of liberty. It's not the law of bondage, it's the law of liberty. In 1 John 5, 3, John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, if you're not in Christ, God's law can be burdensome if you're not in him. Of course. This is when we come to Christ, and when we come to Christ, we have the promise of that burden being lifted from us trying to live out those things, to earn salvation from God through the works of the law. 
In Matthew 11, 28, it says, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The world thinks that if I'm freed from God's moral law, I can have freedom. I hear this all the time. If you, if you listen to people who apostatize from the faith, one of the things you'll see that's in common, I want you to list, start listening to these people whenever you get a chance to, you hear them. One of the things that they will always say, I feel free now. I feel free. What are they saying right there? I no longer have the restraints of God's law binding me any longer. I am now free to do what I want to do. The problem is, that they don't understand that their freedom from Christ is really bondage to their sin. This is what Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32. He says, Jesus was saying to those who believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He goes on in verse 34 to say, Jesus answered them, because they said to them, we're not we're, we are free. We've never been enslaved. They were enslaved at that time when they were saying that to Roman rule. How ignorant of them and how blinded of them to not see that they were at that time under Roman rule. And Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you. And he was talking about Roman rule, of course. He says, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Listen, you are in bondage whether you are in Christ or outside of Christ. Do you understand that? You are a slave of Christ or you are a slave of your sin. There's only two ways to be. There's no in between there. I know these, listen, I'm speaking black and white because you know why? John spoke in black and white. Jesus spoke in black and white here. You are either a slave of your sin or you're a slave of Christ. But you are a slave nonetheless. You say, well, why don't they come to Christ? Because they don't like the light. They like the darkness rather than the light. The culture in which we currently live has metaphorically thrown down the gauntlet and has declared war against God and against his Messiah and they are saying the words of scripture, we will not have God rule over us. That is their cry. And this is working itself out in society today. God says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The world says, in the beginning, nothing came from nothing. God says, I have made men in the I've made man, and he is the crowning object of my creation. Science says that, that we are descended from monkeys. God says that I have made man in my image after my likeness, and therefore he has intrinsic value. The world says that it is a woman's choice to kill her baby in the womb, although made in the image of God. God says that he made man male and female. The world says that you can be any gender, and for that matter, any species that you choose, even a cat, if that is how you feel. That is the world's way of thinking. And this is what is opposed to the Lord's rule. Let me ask you all a question, young people. Answer this question. Have you ever thought in your mind, when I turn 18, I'm out of here? You think like that? When I turn 18, I'm out of here. That's a mind of rebellion right there. Your parents are teaching you the word of truth, the gospel of the, the word of God. They're, 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 they're communicating to you way of salvation, are you rejecting that? That's not submission to your parents. That's not obeying God. Listen, that is rebellion against God. Let me ask you another question. Why are you here this morning? Would you be here this morning if your parents did not make you come this morning? Think about that. 
would you be here today at, 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 at 1030 or at the 9 o'clock service, going to Sunday school or in here listening to the word of God and then staying here for the preaching of the word of God if your parents did not make you? Think about that, okay? Wrestle with that. Something you need to wrestle with, okay? Because that shows where your heart is. Are you willing to submit to God and to his word? Do you want to hear the word? Are you delighting to hear the word of God and to submit to that word and obey that word to the glory of God? Now in verse 4, the scene shifts. And we see the response of the sovereign in verses 4 through 6. Notice the contrast between these two scenes. The first scene takes place on the earth, and the second scene takes place in heaven. Notice also the tumultuous scene in verses 1 through 3. The nations are in an uproar. And notice the majestic calm in verses 4 through 6. It says in verses 4 through 6, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. See, the world paints a picture of God as if, I use the word respond here, but I don't, I don't want you to get that in your mind that somehow things are taking place and God is like some sort of frantic manager of a store or something like that. He's just reacting to, oh, I got to take care of things over here and I got to do this over here. That's not how God is dealing with things. If you look down further, it says, I have already installed my king in Zion. I have sent out the decree. It has already taken place. And I will win. In the end, their actions and their emotions are futile. They're empty. And so although we see this and we talk about God responding here, this is not, we're, this is not the things that we're, we're, just, we're just doing this because in time and when the scriptures condescend to us to communicate to us the scriptures so that we can understand and grasp these things, this is how we, are, this is how we hear these things. And so... He says here that he who sits in the heavens laugh. God is not in heaven, wringing his hands, anxious over what he will do to, the, to stem the tide of the encroaching nations that have set themselves against him. Now, the picture that the psalmist paints is a picture of supreme and divine calm. The psalmist describes God in response to the rage of the nations as he who sits one writer in the Treasury of David said this, it is the quiet dignity of the omnipotent. And so we see in verse 4 the deriding laughter in his response to these things, the deriding laughter of the sovereign. He says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Notice, the one who laughs at them is the Lord. In verse 3, it speaks of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That is Lord in response to, or that's, that's a, a name for Jehovah or Yahweh right there. We say Yahweh. But in verse 4, it speaks of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That is the name Adonai. And that highlights the sovereignty of this God, that he is the sovereign God the sovereign Lord. So it says that he, he laughs at them. Now, I don't think that God is literally laughing here. This speaks of his state, his posture toward them. I think we get a picture of this if we go over into the book of Job, Job chapter 41, and it speaks here of Leviathan. Verse 41, verse, chapter 41, verse 25, it says, when he raises himself up, the mighty fear, because of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart or the javelin. 
He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. And here's what he says. It says, he laughs at the rattling of the javelin. So we know Leviathan, this creature of the deep, is not laughing. He's not literally laughing. It speaks of his posture. He's unbothered by the things that they are trying to do to destroy him. And this is what God is saying right here to us in Psalm 2. I'm unbothered by this. I laugh at them. I, I hold them in derision, as some of your, 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 your translations say. I hold them in derision. That's why I use the title, The Deriding Laughter of the Sovereign. You see, we think we're tough and big and mighty. We think we're a mighty nation. We think we're, uh, the, the world can, we can achieve anything. But in comparison to God, we are nothing. This is what the posture of God, right? This is the state of God at this point right here. He's seeing these, these puny pugilists who are trying to box with God. They can't do it. They cannot overcome him. He's unbothered by their attacks. Consider how God thinks of the nations. In Isaiah 40, verse 15, it says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Down in verse 21, it says, Do you know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a, like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. One writer said, this is the laughter that arises from God's impregnable supremacy. His impregnable supremacy. That means it cannot be thwarted. It cannot be penetrated. It's an impregnable supremacy. No one can overthrow God. No one can thwart his plan. No one can stifle God, and, 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 and no one bothers God, as we would say. Even the nations and all their plans and all their machinations. God isn't bothered by this. He's not bothered by this at all. So the scoffing laughter is not alone. The question may arise, is God silent about the rebellion? Has he turned a blind eye? God is holy and the rebellion has ascended incense God. And so he speaks to them in his anger. In verse 5 it says, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king on Zion. When God is silent and it appears that the wicked are prospering, it is good to know that there is a then. He says here, then he will speak to them in his anger. This is the heart of Psalm 73. The psalmist saw the wicked prospering. There were no, there's no pangs in their death like even the righteous. They lived fat lives. They, they, they prospered greatly. And the psalmist even questioned whether or not he should hold on to his integrity. It says, but then he came into the house of the Lord and he knew their end, that there was going to be judgment for them. And so there is a then, and so therefore we see God's terrifying wrath, his anger. He says, 
Then I will speak to them in his anger. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, and here's what he says to them, the definitive word of the sovereign. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In verse 6, that is. Notice that he says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is something that he has already done. He's already installed his king. Who is this king? The king is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. I've installed my king on Zion. And therefore, the victory will be mine. Now, for these last few verses here, I absolutely do not have time to address them. Let's just have a couple of points of application in light of this, these things we've discussed so far. First of all, the unrivaled sovereignty of God is a doctrine that is pervasive in the scriptures and a delight to the Christian's heart. There's an old um, children's hymn that the world has hijacked and made it its own and has changed the words and diluted it. It's the, it's the hymn. He's got the whole world in his hand. And it's a hymn that says he's got the whole world in his hand. That's the first stanza. And it kind of keeps repeating that over and over again. Then the next one says he's got the wind and the rain in his hands. And they sing that three times. Then he says he got, he's, got, he's got the little tiny baby in his hands. And they keep repeating that. And he's got you and me, brother, in his hands. And he keeps repeating that. And if you notice from that hymn, they start with the reality that God is the sovereign of all the world. He's got the whole world in his hands. That hymn is instructive to us. Because if he's got the whole world in his hand, he surely has you and me in his hand, brothers and sisters in Christ. That when we look around and we see a world that is in upheaval, that is, in some senses, from our vantage points, looks like an expression of chaos, we can turn back to the reality of Scripture that says that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And he's ruling and reigning these things. And these things are not out of control. That they are marching forward. Listen to this. These things are marching forward just as God has ordained them to march forward. Nothing is happening right now that is, it is surprising to God, that has caught him off guard, that is strange to him, that he's scratching his head at. No, the things that are taking place right now, whether it be here in America or over in, in the Middle East, those things have not caught God off guard. God is fully aware of these things. He has ordained them to take place to bring about his holy and omnipotent will in the final analysis that we are marching toward the consummation of all things. And so we need not fret and be worried about these things. Now you know it's 2023 right now, right? 2024, listen, it's going to be a doozy. <laughs> this is an election season. You know it's going to be bonkers in America. Come back to this truth right here. Remind yourself that he's got the whole world in his hands. Because you're going to need to remember that because you may see some cringing cringeworthy things, some things that might cause your skin to crawl, to make you think and think that things are crumbling right around you. But you've got to remember and go back to the truth that God is in control. He's sovereign. Listen, the scriptures say 
You look out, you go outside, you see a cloud. The forecast is what? What do you think is going to happen? It's going to rain, right? It's 2024. You know it's going to rain. Get your rain, get your raincoat and get your rain hat on, the sovereignty of God, because when that time comes, you need to be prepared and you need to be ready for the, the tumult that may ensue, the chaos that you might see in our country during that time, batting down the hatches with the scriptures, with the word of God, the sovereignty of God. Don't be caught off guard. Don't, don't get, get to thinking in your mind, oh, what's happening right now? I'm so afraid. I'm fearful. No, you go back to the scriptures. We have nothing to fear. We even sung in that hymn, that last hymn we sung this e today, hymn number 168, based on Psalm 20, 23. He says, and though I walk the darkest path, I will not fear the evil one. For you are with me, and your rod and staff are the comfort I need to know. And I will trust in you alone. I will trust in you alone. For your endless mercy follows me. Your goodness will lead me home. Amen. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to be reminded of your truth. Although the nations are in an uproar and they rage against you, the people are plotting a vain thing against you that will not succeed. Yet, Lord, you are the ruler of them all, and you have installed your king in Zion, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your king now reigns and rules over all of creation. How we rejoice in it, and thank you and praise you for the comfort of the sovereignty of God. But may we continue to lay hold of that truth. And may that truth lay hold of us, Lord, in the time of trouble and, and trying and testing. That we might walk in a manner that is pleasing to you. That our hearts would be not filled with fear and anxiety, but trust in you, our sovereign God. Help us, Lord, not to be those who fret and worry about tomorrow, knowing that tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. Lord, help us to know that you are our sovereign God, our Father in heaven, and you will fend for us and take care of us. You will protect us and keep us. We thank you and praise you. We give your name the glory in Christ's name. Amen.